Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We are in uh, chapter 11 and this morning talk about, uh, want to talk about the Lord's Supper. Maybe one of the most divisive issues in the history of the church, which is sort of ironic because the whole point is uh, we would unify around this supper. But maybe part of the problem in sorting out the history is that it is the center of the meaning of the atonement, redemption, the work of the church, and how you know they're all interconnected. The predominant New Testament picture and the early church picture of atonement that's reflected, I think, in the early understanding of communion is that Christ defeated the powers of evil and death and the devil, you know, the bondage of sin. And this directly ties into the Lord's Supper as being celebrated on the night of Passover. Just as death would pass over Israel and they would escape from slavery, so too on the night Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper, he brings together the theme of being saved from slavery to sin, slavery to death. And in the face of his own death, he changes up the meaning, of course. He takes the Passover meal. We believe it is the Passover meal. And he says, this is a new covenant in which the promise is not only for Israel now, but it's for everyone, which is the, you know, the saying that Alexander Campbell, if I remember, pronounces over the communion table is we neither invite nor debar. That is, it's the Lord's table. It's not our table. We don't control it. He's the host. We're not the host. For a, a variety of reasons, then, this early Christian, what was called Christus Victor, the idea that Christ defeated the principalities and powers, death and the devil. It was displaced in the history of the church. Maybe you know, the rise of Constantinian Christianity, maybe a, a part of what Christus Victor would do would say not just that Jesus saves us from the devil, but would identify the emperor and the ruling powers and say, well, there's the devil and that's what we're saved from. But when Constantine becomes a Christian, maybe we put that in quotes, I don't know. The ruling prince, the prince of the world, which would have normally been identified with Satan, is now a Christian. And so the early Christians, you know, maybe that where they would have celebrated the Lord's Supper, like the Israelites, in a kind of persecuted situation. I think the original Passover and the early church's communion supper were very similar in that. The emperor of Rome oppresses and kills, and there is the promise of life, new life, in the face of imminent death. Well, maybe this is a product uh, we could cite many things, that the Arian controversy in the early church in which the divinity of Christ was denied, and then the church kind of reacted to that and at the expense of his humanity would emphasize directly his divinity and this impacted the way the Lord's Supper was viewed. That is that a gulf opened up between Christ or God and us and what then tended to bridge the gap 
was the system of the sacraments, which the Lord's Supper is right at the center of that, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the church becomes the substitute for Christ as mediator. Anselm's notion of divine satisfaction uh, pictures the payment, and this will literally be taken up in the Lord's Supper, that we're paying something to God, and in the Mass, the sacrifice of Christ is pictured as something the church does and gives to God then the sacrifice. Now certainly there's sacrifice connected with the Lord's Supper, but the idea, of course, in Corinthians, I'm about to read from 1 Corinthians 11 if you want to turn there. And the picture there in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the people in the church sacrifice for one another. The, the, the wealthy will sacrifice their position and place and that it's sacrificial service, that it's a communal event, and it's not something that in some way the sacrifice is simply, you know, penal substitution or divine satisfaction, in which the focus is on the exchange between the father and son, you know, an infinite offense against an infinite, the infinite honor of God, requiring an infinite payment and then you have the more masses you have the, the better because you're ransoming people originally in early well, actually around the time of the Reformation the idea is that the mass rescues people from out of purgatory or how long they have to spend there instead of being ransomed from sin, death, the devil people are ransomed from God and God's anger rather than sin, death, and the devil. And so too the Lord's Supper shifted focus to something done for God. And so to retain the sense of participation in Christ, what he has done for us, I think it becomes exceedingly hard, difficult, historically, because of all of the various theological and social shifts. But what Paul is saying in invoking the Lord's Supper here in Corinthians is he wants these people to be ethical. He's saying you need to treat each other correctly. And the Lord's Supper then is to put this ethic into practice. And this tells us the church is not a static entity which acts as God, but it is a community of practice in which certain practices are put into place. You know, and we know this, the church can go bad, right? In Revelation, where practice is bad, Christ will spew you out of his mouth, it says in Revelation 3.16. And so the church is not the authority that sacrifices Christ. So let's read from chapter 11. Let me read verse 23 to 29. For I, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. 
Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. As I've argued, I said last week, the whole problem of sin is precisely the reign of death. Christ undoes this reign through his humanity, right? He defeats death, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we then, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, we participate in this reversal in our communion, in our own baptism. So Paul says, this is my body. He's repeating, he says, what he received from the Lord. This is, in some way, the understanding, the tradition, the words of Christ that Paul has received. At a minimum, it indicates group solidarity. It indicates fellowship. The word that Paul used in chapter 10 was koinonia. At a deeper level, we, we recognize there's an organic oneness of this body. Paul is going to argue this. This is really what he's arguing here. You need to be united. You need to be one. And he's going to talk about the body of Christ as having many members, but one body. So it's not a magical rite or even a sacramental event in the way that sacrament is often pictured. Rather, it is moral and ethical and it's aimed at shaping the common life of the Christian community. The meal is part of you know, the practice of establishing and maintaining Christian community. And so the rules of the meal link the conduct of their participants. If you're going to be a part of this meal, this is what Paul is saying, here's what you need to do. If you don't do this, if you don't notice the weaker brother, if you mistreat one another, if you're schismatic in taking this meal, it's not the Lord's Supper. His whole point here is what makes this the Lord's Supper is the way that you eat it. Not what's eaten, not the words that are said over it, but the group that comes together in their attitude. And the idea is that all who partake are to sacrifice. We can use the language of sacrifice they, can, they are to lay down their lives, not to appease the wrath of God, not a sacrifice of propitiation. If when you assemble, you ignore one another, he says, each one goes ahead, some are hungry and some are overindulging. In verse 20, then you're not eating this supper. And so the point of the meal is solidarity in the kingdom. The fellowship of the meal is primary. Not what is eaten, not whose house it's in. And this may be an, have been part of the problem. It was probably the wealthy who could afford to have an, you know, a large group of people in their house. And the way that the houses were arranged, maybe the living room or the main room would hold a dozen people. And so apparently the important people got to come into the living room or the main room and those less important were said, well, you go out in the hallway or you go to the atrium and they're given lesser sorts of food. Paul says, if you're doing it that way, you ain't doing it right. This is not the Lord's Supper. 
And he's saying, discern the body of Christ. Make judgments about yourself. Examine yourself. That this process of recognizing the body, not to look at the elements, not to notice what the recipe of the food is, but to notice the makeup of the koinonia. So to live gently, to lovingly sacrifice, to live generously, that's to become, that's to be, that's to practice what, what is being instituted here. This last week, the death of Christ is clearly part of what is celebrated as a reversal of our slavery to sin. And the Lord's Supper is an application of this. It's part of the process that we were in discommunion, we were in alienation, and now we're in communion with one another and with God. Romans 6 is a parallel passage talking about baptism. And so the supper itself does not offer up Christ to be ingested. You know, we don't digest the literal physical flesh. It's not a supper that, in which we literally consume his fleshly body born of Mary. In fact, the stuff we eat is apparently not where Christ is to be found. Christ is to be found in the koinonia, in the fellowship. Not due to the transformation or of the food, but due to the transformation of the people gathered around the table who are a part, they're part of his body. What Paul says is to remember his death. It is not to imagine, we say remember his death, not to imagine he's, he's suffering still in hell or that he is continually dying as that was one time pictured in the Mass. Rather, the meal is the experience of atonement. Atonement's a good theological, it's an English word, but actually it's a, a, a neat theological word, at one, meant. We're made one. It is not a sign of something else that is happening, but rather we're gathered together, we're united in the body of Christ, and we might say the thing that is signified you know, the unification, the fellowship, and the sign of that unification are brought together. Not in the food, not through an incantation, but through the koinonia, the fellowship. And that is, it's, you know, if you want to talk about the presence of Christ, well, we can talk about his presence in that sense, but the fact that it's a remembrance also speaks of an absence, right? He's not fully present because... The command is that you partake of this meal until I return, until the parousia, until the kingdom of God. It's a reality in that there's really people present. and It is a spiritual reality that life is given to us through Christ. The fruit of the vine, the substance of the food, the body of Christ all speak of this life that is given. But it's a meal at which Christ then is the host, that is, that he's the one who gathers it, that he's the one who invites. There has been a, a kind of understanding in the medieval church that it was a sacrament, and then there was the Reformation and a kind of rejection of any kind of significance to it at all, so that in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Mass on a daily basis, as often as you can have it. You have the Lord's Supper, 
And then in an extremely you know, reaction to that, in a Zwinglian Protestant church, you may just celebrate it occasionally, biannually. And so the reaction is also wrong, that there is a significance in the Lord's Supper that we don't want to lose. Certainly it's not the crude literalism of eating the actual flesh and drinking the blood. Even at points in the medieval period that it's describing the teeth tearing the flesh of Christ. But then Thomas Aquinas comes along and he gives us a very sophisticated Aristotelian explanation and by the time Aquinas is done it sounds a little bit like what Martin Luther is going to say much later but I think in both instances the there is a failure to affirm that it's not this objective thing apart from the fellowship that accomplishes redemption or atonement Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, they're all going to disagree about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Now, it's sort of a strange history that, of course, they're kind of literally under the sword. You know, we say under the gun, but they are attempting to unite over and against the Roman Catholics to present a kind of united front to the Roman Empire. But it's an odd thing to present a united front so that you can kill your enemies (laughs) over the issue of the Lord's Supper. This love feast of union seems to have been lost in the various controversies that arose. And so maybe it's just easier to describe how both the Roman church and the reformers got it wrong. The point is to avoid either extreme, the extreme of imagining that the Eucharist or mass is in and of itself an objective remedy. Or on on the other extreme to imagine that the entire issue is subjective and has simply to do with the attitudes in my own mind or the individual by himself. It's easy to say who's right and wrong in this because most of those who entered the debate were willing to consider the other people heretics and kill them. Probably that's missing the point of the meal. It's missing the point of Christianity. And so what all failed to do was join faith, the faith and practice of this community, which is really what Paul is saying. This is the essence of Christianity. And so there's no priestly mediators. There's, you know, this is really what Paul is arguing against. The Corinthians are wanting to have a kind of hierarchy around the supper. The important people get the main part of the meal and we think it was just a literal meal. They're just having dinner. And they're saying, well, you know, we get the best part and then the lesser people get the lesser part. They're creating a hierarchy around the supper. And it's precisely against this that Paul is writing. Those who would divide themselves, he says this disqualifies this as the Lord's Supper. And so it's a communal meal. Maybe the wealthy were acting as patrons and other people were guests in their house. But it's a meal in a home and the way that however they're going to have to do it. If there's not enough room, Paul is saying, you need to make it so that the lesser, the weaker, maybe they were servants, maybe they were even slaves, they are to be brought in to the main part of the service.
And so where the division continues, where a hierarchy is in place, that disqualifies it. Which seems to speak against the creation of a laity and a clergy, which is precisely Luther's point, is that it's around the Lord's Supper that you get the creation of a kind of high-class clergy or clerical understanding. Paul uses a phrase here. He says, dissensions are unavoidable. And perhaps the phrase is an excuse or pretext. Maybe he's quoting the householders in Corinth. The way in which the Lord's Supper was conducted for them, yeah, we have to make divisions. And complaints were made by the poor, maybe, about the outrageous effects, you know. Do you despise the church of God, Paul asked, and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? He says in verse 22, in this I shall not praise you. Uh, so then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. How you, your attitude towards one another is what constitutes the supper. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. That is, don't come and gorge yourself in front of people who may, in fact, be without the capacity to feed themselves. He says, if you do this, you're coming together for judgment. You're making people feel like second-class Christians. And so one cannot help but think this would be a discouragement to any kind of distinctions of class that will arise. Like an early patron, that's precisely the problem. Or the idea that the priest is again offering Christ as a sacrifice. Then, of course, that's the impetus behind the Lutheran Reformation, that the reformers will reject this idea, and the, by the way, the Roman Catholics reject it, or at least will amend it. And so Luther says, the Mass is a good work, and he means that as a kind of insult. That is, you imagine you're working your way to God, the Mass is a sacrifice, and it has brought in its train innumerable abuses. The Holy Sacrament is made into mere merchandise, he says, and the whole income of priests and monks depending on it. I think Paul might agree with Luther on this. It is not the Lord's Supper you are celebrating. So those who hosted the Lord's Supper in Corinth, maybe they said, well, we just have to accept the conventions, don't we, of the society. There's upper class, there's lower class. But what Paul is saying, no, the conventions of the society are undone in the meal. That we're breaking that down. Those who hosted it, they're saying, well, you know, we have to keep the divisions. And Paul is saying to put shame on those who have nothing is to miss the whole point of the Lord's Supper that has been handed down. Jesus, you know, he performed the supper. It is a thanksgiving. Paul has just described it. It is a koinonia. And it is the death of the Lord which you are proclaiming in some way. It is not a repetition of the death of Christ. It's a remembrance. But maybe it's the hope and remembrance, you know, is like that of the Passover meal in which they repeat the events as a kind of participation. We might talk about it in that way, but not in the sense of Christ's body being physically present in the elements because it is a remembrance, it is a hope. 
there is an absence. But maybe a reliving of the drama, a reliving, you know, as the drama of the Passover, there is a, we are participants in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in the life, death, resurrection of Christ. And so we're to initiate this new covenant relationship that changes up human relations. It changes up class distinctions. It undoes those sorts of distinctions. And those who eat and drink in a selfish way, those who want to maintain these distinctions, Paul says that they're answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. And so the problem here is not that you're desecrating the symbols, but you're desecrating Christ. You're desecrating the body of Christ. By mistreating other members of the church, they're repeating the sort of sin that killed Christ in the first place. Those who continue to sin are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding him up to contempt, Hebrews 6.6. 6. They're bringing judgment on themselves. I don't quite know what it means that it's causing sickness and death, but that's the way Paul pictures it. Because you're doing this wrong, because you're not living in community as you should, that God is judging you. So, my summary. As divine satisfaction, penal substitution, or Christus Victor, the idea of how we view the death of Christ, these opposed views are linked to different understandings of communion. If the Son bears the anger of the Father, and in the Mass this is the picture, and by the way, this is the, the Reformers don't depart from this, the sacrifice is to propitiate or pay for a sin that they're suffering. And so it, the idea of forgiveness here is to ameliorate the anger of God. That's not forgiveness. The forgiveness is a practiced forgiveness, right? God's forgiven us and we forgive one another. If you have anything against your brother, leave the altar and go and make things right with your brother. You're not practicing the Lord's Supper apart from this loving, forgiving relationship. And Satan in Christus Victor is depicted as the prince of this world, that all of the kingdoms of the world are in place. And he exercises this through fear. You know, this is Romans 8, this is Hebrews, the picture that the fear of death. And both divine satisfaction in the 1100 penal substitution, Calvin's picture, they leave this fear ironically in place. They leave the law in place as if it is the legal systems. In Anselm's time, the Roman church had become very infatuated with Roman law. And instead of Christ displacing the law, suspending the law, rendering the law unnecessary, he dies because of the law and keeps the law up and running. I think that's a complete misunderstanding of the slavery that the law exercises. Think of the slavery of the Jews in Egypt and the departure. That's the way Paul pictures the departure from the law. As Luther says, all of them imagine that they are offering Christ himself to God the Father as a fully sufficient sacrifice. And they're doing a good work. And in Protestantism and in the Catholic Counter-Reformation, there certainly is a turn against this, but not a full return to the idea that I think is central. Christ defeated death. And this defeat comes together in our celebration of the Lord's Supper and baptism. 
And so if we, in the language of Paul, if we don't recognize that the law of sin and death is undone, then the law of sin and death is in some way left in place. And I'm afraid that's what our many contemporary views of the atonement does, and that's leaked into our understanding or people's understanding of the Lord's Supper. But throughout the Lord's Supper, the Lord, it is the notion of promise. Paul uses the language you know, of, that Christ used. It's a new covenant. What is the promise? What is the covenant? The promises of resurrection. The promises of eating again in the, in the kingdom. The promises of life, new life in the face of the reality of death. John Stott pictures, he says, well, what you have in the death of Christ is that you have one person of the Trinity pitted against the other person of the Trinity as if the Father is against the Son. What this does, he says that God has turned his back, hidden his face from the Son. But that, the, the picture in, I think, in communion, the Father and the Son are united in the work of defeating evil, death, the devil. And the Lord's Supper re- celebrates this. It reenacts the defeat of this violence this you know th- that killed him it's not that oh we're happy Jesus was killed that he was murdered and we celebrate this in the Lord's Supper that would be quite perverse right but we celebrate the fact that the powers that killed him are defeated in Christ we're not killing Christ again or celebrating what would kill him we're su- celebrating the defeat of this power the idea that, oh, we must kill him, that the nation would be saved. Well, it's precisely the defeat of nationalism or the notion that he must die to save the nation. It's a defeat of ethnocentrism that only Jews can partake. It's a defeat of egocentrism. Oh, I'll just think about myself while I eat of this. No, you think about the community. It's a defeat of all forms of evil that would deal out death and violence and alienation and mistreatment of the neighbor. It is an overcoming of alienation that would make table fellowship then. Normally impossible, and now it's made possible because of Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.